The only thing that's worse than not asking your customers for their feedback right. is asking them for it and then not doing anything. Welcome to NPS I Love You, a podcast powered by Catalyst. I'm your host, Ben Wynn, and this show is all about awesome people, ideas, and stories, all with a customer success twist. On NPS I Love You, I talk to everyone from artists to scientists, CEOs to CSMs, and everyone in between to give you powerful insights that will help you in your career and in life. Bonnie Chatterjee is the head of customer experience at GitHub and is focused on building GitHub's customer experience function and instilling customer-obsessed thinking, measurements, and actions into every decision. In this episode, Bonnie discusses prioritization, building positive habits, and how customer experience and customer success can collaborate. So I recently saw that you shared some words that you live by, which are discipline is more reliable than motivation. Can you explain that idea and how that manifests for you? So if you think about the definition of motivation, it's really about the desire to do something. It's a reason for acting in a specific way. Whereas the definition of discipline is more around training oneself in a controlled and habitual way. So really the difference to me is one seems a lot dependent on myself. I might be super excited to do something one day, but it may not appear quite as exciting the next day. Right. And so the outcome becomes dependent on personal feeling. So if I try to make something a habit instead, you know, it becomes part of my life. It's ingrained into my day's work, into my day's habits, into something that then becomes reliable and predictable. So that's why I think, to me, uh, motivation is much more... Re- you know, much less reliable than discipline. And a good example that I can share with you is in quarantine, I found myself with some extra time because I didn't have to commute to work, (laughs) right? And so one of the things I started to do a lot of was exercising. And I found that it was fun to try different exercises and different, you know, genres, different days. And it became, it got to the point where I would miss it if I didn't do it. And that's when I realized that it had become a habit. And it was no longer something that I needed to want to do or I needed to psych myself up. It was just a part of my day. And so that's where I think having something become more of a discipline, more of a habit is more predictable and reliable than if you're just relying on motivation. It's a good point. So how I interpreted it is discipline is something that sort of comes from from you and it's a an internal, reliable, like, repeatable thing, whereas mm-hmm. motivation can fluctuate depending on external factors. Yeah. And I think it's the repeatable part of it that draws me towards the discipline of things, like writing a gratitude journal, for for example. If you do it every day, it becomes a habit. And mm. and I find that the more things are reliable and predictable, it actually gives me more space to be more exploratory in other parts of my life. That's fair. So what did, can you give me an example? So for example, write things like exercising or writing in gratitude journals if those those are part of my everyday life and routine which means that if i have some time i can do something to me that sounds very different or exciting like yesterday i went for a hike with a couple of friends we were masked and social distance but it felt more spontaneous and you know it was something exciting not part of my everyday life so it's kind of interesting it's true it's kind of goes along the same lines with the idea of like if you that's counterintuitive. But if the more you do, the more 
you can do is sort of it. Like you can almost create time. Like if you schedule your day and you're doing a lot, then you're used to a certain pace or you're, you just are able to do more than if you have an empty schedule. It's really hard to get like one thing done. That's true for me too. I mean, I don't know if that's everybody, but for me, it's definitely me. <laughs> yeah. The more I have something scheduled, the more I find myself able to accomplish and have time for other things. Mm -hmm. You know the the saying that if you want something done, ask the busiest person in the room? That's true. That's a good one. I forgot about that one. Yeah. The uh, gratitude journal thing, I've probably tried. I probably hold the record for most journal books with like three pages filled out. <laughs> like I have bought journals at so many different points throughout my life. And I, every time I know the value of it, I know how the benefits... And I will sit down, I'll commit to it, I'll try different tactics to build habits. And for some reason, I cannot reliably journal every day. I can go to the gym every day, no problem, as long as it's open, which it's not right now. But no problem. Get me to do crunches every day, no problem. But for some reason, writing in a journal, which theoretically should be a lot easier, is a much more difficult habit for me to build. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to, to drill in on today, obviously we're up to our neck in customer success stuff on, on my side and you are leading customer experience and that's sort of the, the approach you take to it. And in some worlds, those two concepts are synonymous <laughs> and then in others, there are completely polar opposites. What is the setup like at GitHub? What do the differences mean to you? That's a great question. And I do agree that there is a lot of confusion about the two terms. In my mind, they're very clear. So I think of CX, the customer experience function, as the definition part of the house. We define what a customer experience can and should be. We try to understand our customers. We do journey mapping. We try to understand, hey, this is the ideal scenario. This is the ideal experience. And how can we build towards that? What pain points are we solving for? Like Those are the things around the definition of experience that the customer experience team is responsible for. The customer success team is a lot about enablement of that experience. Mm. Now we have this definition of an ideal experience. What can we do to make sure that our customers are actually experiencing that? Oh, okay. You know, how can I sit down with my customer and ensure that the journey that we've decided to go on together is aligned with this ideal journey that we know would benefit them? Or how are we making sure that it aligns with their outcomes, the desired outcomes that they have for themselves? So I really think of it as two hobs of a customer's ability to thrive with our product or our service. One is we define what that should look like, and the other one is we enable that to happen. Ah, that makes a lot of sense in terms of the, the division. And that's how we do it at GitHub, too. That is how it is. Just done. to tie the bow on that question. How do those teams collaborate like is it are they part of the same department is there are they paired together like as a csm and a cx manager you know like how how is it set up structurally they are two parts of the organization that we have so we call the organization our customer success org and that really involves all of the post sales touch points with our customers so we have our customer success managers there we have a professional services we have a customer support and we have customer experience so the way that the customer experience team collaborates with the rest of these teams is really on a lot of our work is around consultation. So here is a customer problem we want to solve. And so our team will come in and think about think about it from a few different lenses. You know, what are the different pain points they're having? What's going wrong today? Try to understand what data we have today. How can we measure 
quantitatively what is going wrong and the cost to us, the cost to our customers, and then try to solve it with them with a very customer-centric approach. Like if the customer was in the center of this discussion, what would we do to make lives better for them? And so that's how we would you know, collaborate with each of those teams. Very cool. And does customer experience ever talk about buying experience or onboarding experience, like, uh, you know, the journey to, to discovery? Is that a different team or is that falls under the same team? It's all part of the same team. So I think of our customer's journey as one life cycle, which starts from when they become aware that something needs to change to when they start researching what that something might be to when they come to GitHub and say, hey, let's check you out all the you know, way to we've done our negotiations and our contracts and they have chosen GitHub. And then we try to make you successful with the product that you've picked. So the whole thing is the customer's journey. And so we're responsible for thinking through all of those different pieces. I love looking at it as your responsibility starts when your future customer realizes that something needs to change because it's the most customer centric and it's just, and it's true. And it, you know, really looks at it from a, a holistic perspective of that entire journey. And then after uh, the customer buys, and obviously there's then the, what you were talking about before the collaboration with customer success to design and then fulfill the experience or enable the experience of those outcomes. Exactly. How do you measure customer experience? Like GitHub obviously has, I don't know, how many, how many users does GitHub have? Let's start with that. We have over 50 million developers. Wow. Okay. So a little more than Catalyst, but how do you measure customer experience for 50 million developers? That's a great question. So let's talk about our audience. <laughs> it's an easy one. A, right? little, <laughs> a little bit more. So we are incredibly, we consider ourselves incredibly fortunate that over 50, 55, I don't even know what the actual number is. It keeps going up. The million developers think of GitHub as the place for them to write their code, to collaborate with their friends or colleagues, and to do something that's good for the world because the world's open source code sits on GitHub. And so we have to think of it as a mix of people who are doing using GitHub for their work. You know, it's my job, I'm going to write some code or I'm going to build a product for my company. Or there's also this whole group of people who use it for their passion projects, for their pet projects. They may be writing some open source for the world. Maybe they're doing just a little thing that they're building for, I don't know, their uncle you know, on the weekends. So we have both of those. And our enterprise offering is a little bit different than our you know, other offerings. So our enterprise offering has some of those features that enterprises need to think about to be secure in their code development and to do it very collaboratively. Um, so the way we start thinking about it is then what are the different personas who use and you know rely on GitHub? Who are those people? So from an enterprise perspective, we can think of the decision maker as a persona, right? Somebody who's making the decision to go with GitHub. We could think of our administrators as some of a, a very key persona who can help to move the users into GitHub and help set up all of the you know structure around it. Our developers or the end users could be a persona that we really want to think about. And again, when we think about our developers, we can think about those in the enterprise space, those you know who are outside of the enterprise space, who are individual developers, hobbyists, proprietors. You know, so there's a lot of those. We think of security researchers. We have security products. And then finally, you know, when you think of the open source world, we really care about our maintainers. We really care about you know, community sponsors and stars. And so there's 
this whole plethora of personas that we really care about. So then if you think about, we have a set of personas, we have a set of products, then it really becomes a mix of methods. So we have, you know, different ways of listening, measuring, et cetera, for some of our different personas and products. Very cool. But yeah, it, it makes sense. You'd have to kind of really understand those personas, what their out desired outcomes are and desired experiences, and then measure it through, like you said, it sounds like you have some custom built things or some other products that you'd use to try to map that out. And then do you do random focus groups or random surveys or things like that periodically as well to measure? We employ all of those different, you know, approaches. We have we do focus groups when we're launching new products, for example. We have interviews. I personally have done a ton of customer interviews when I'm trying to understand, you know, what are their pain points, what GitHub can do better. So we do those. We have some surveys we send out as well. We measure satisfaction at certain transaction points. Mm, okay. Transaction meaning, you know, an interaction that happened between a person on GitHub and, a, and one of our customers. We try to employ various different methods because no one solution will fit, you know, all of the use cases. So we try to be specific about what we're looking for. It's always interested me because I've always been in enterprise customer success where it's very much like, this is Bonnie. What does Bonnie care about? How can I help Bonnie do her job better? And I can get to know Bonnie really well. And then that's how I can do really well as a CSM when I was a CSM. But at scale like that, you can't do that. So you have to do it by persona. And that's always struck me as a really interesting challenge. And something I think about on the community side now, it's a similar approach to mm -hmm. understanding the community, people in the community, bucketing them, and then determining how we can support them. But it's a really cool thing to do on the customer experience side. I'm sure you have a lot of metrics that you measure success on, but I'm sure that uptime is probably one of the most important for GitHub. And the hard thing about that one is that if you're doing it well, nobody notices, no one congratulates you, no one gives you a bonus. Mm -hmm. But the second it's down, the whole world is on fire and your Twitter is blowing up. How do you think about that and manage that from a, a customer experience perspective? I think in all things, we tend to default to transparency. As a company, we value transparency with our customers very highly. And actually internally too, it's one of our core values. But um, the way we do that is we want to make sure that the people who rely on us realize just how deeply we wear that cloak of responsibility that they have entrusted us with their mission critical code. And so I, you know, I just want to make sure anyone who's listening really understands that GitHub takes our uptime and our availability and our reliability so, so um, critically. It's very, very important to us. So um, one of the, I'll give an example of, of how we put customer obsession into practice at GitHub. And customer obsession is one of our core values. So early in 2020, we had a few outages. And as you can imagine, they were very widely publicized. They were terrible for our customers. We had customers that, you know, ask us, to, to figure out what's going on and you know this is affecting our business. And so rather than doing the root cause analysis for that one outage or one you know couple of outages and move on with our day, we launched a whole program internally at GitHub to not only understand what had caused the outages and fix those and improve those infrastructure aspects of it, but even the policies and methods approach of it. So we studied, you know, what are our services that are currently the most important to our customers? We 
compare that with the services that you know earlier we were caring about. And we wanted to make sure that we were very current in what was critical for our customers now so that we could measure those, report on those. And in addition, we defaulting to transparency, we decided to put out a proactive monthly report on our blog. So that, you know, this blog, of course, has millions of readers and people, it's widely accessible. We proactively measure our uptime. Not only is it always available to measure, but we actually do a monthly report and say, hey, in the past month, we had uptime of this much. There was this one outage. It was for, I don't know, 34 seconds. And, you know, here was the root cause and these are the actions we've taken against it. And we do that every single month and we proactively put it out there. Because again, we realize and we really value the trust that our developers and customers put in us for us to be able to host their code. I love that. The just proactive and action oriented. I feel like that applies to to a lot of different areas, but it's definitely a great approach for one of the most critical metrics mm-hmm. at GitHub. Going back to our initial discussion about habits, you you recently wrote about atomic habits and some examples of how James Clear's ideas could be applied to CX specifically. Can you share the four laws that you came up with and why they're so important for CX professionals? Yeah. Well, firstly, they're not my laws. They are James Clear's laws. And what I was doing is I was taking his laws and thinking about if these are laws to create habits, could we use them in business to create great CX habits, you know? So that was the, the, the thought process I was having. Mm-hmm. And I think you can. I think his four laws are extremely simple to follow. And if you do apply them to your everyday practices, and it doesn't have to be business or customer experience, I feel like it could be a way to formulate that into a habit. And you already know I'm very much into discipline and things like that. So um, the first one is make it obvious. And I think the way for me, how this applies to CX is if we found a pain point, for example, if there's a certain metric that's not meeting thresholds, or if there is a problem that's happening, it is our job to make it clear and to put it out there and to make sure that all of the key stakeholders are aware so that people understand that, hey, we have this group of customers and here's a problem that they're experiencing. So putting it out there, making it Um, visible, making it accessible becomes very important. So then the next part of it becomes making it attractive, which is, okay, so what does that mean for us? You know, what does it mean for me? As a stakeholder, maybe it means that if I can help this group of customers, they will purchase more. Maybe they will be better advocates. And those are on top of just simply doing the right thing because, you know, Doing the right thing by our customers is just, in general, always the best thing to do. But there are ways to make it attractive where it could align with a business stakeholder's own strategies and goals. So there is that aspect of it. And then there is making it easy, which to me, in a CX context, help people come up with an action plan. So let's say we have identified a problem with a customer group, you know, something they're facing, let's say onboarding, and you know they're not having a great experience. We've made it very obvious to all of the stakeholders. We've helped them understand, you know, what's at risk if we don't help solve this. Then the next step becomes give them options, make recommendations, you know, figure out which experiments to run so that the the stakeholders are able to take that and do some action on it right away. You know, one of the things, key things in, in customer experience is making sure that action is happening. It's easier to come up with data and metrics and, you know, point out pain points and all those things. It's harder to say, 
now that I know this, let's go do something about it, right? And, and it's critical to do things about it. So that's where that make it easy part comes in. And where I think we can make it satisfying is by coming back with numbers and customers voice and things like that. So we can, let's say we run an experiment. If we can come back and measure it and say, hey, because of this experiment, 30% of our customers now have a better experience with GitHub. Or, you know, here are five people who actually wrote to us and told us how much they appreciated this change we made. Like that kind of thing then becomes more of a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? The more we do good, the more good comes out of it. And so that's how I think we can make it satisfying. And so that's where those four laws were, again, so simple and so, like when you look at it, you'd be like, huh. Of course, this is how you do things. But that, right. that's why great authors have great books. <laughs> well, the, the best ideas are the simplest, right? One of my favorite quotes, uh, I feel like we're exchanging a lot of good quotes on this on this uh, episode, but the uh, one of my favorite ones is, if I'd had more time, I'd have written a shorter letter. <laughs> I love that. Because it's just like, whenever you're speaking or you're writing, it's so easy to just ramble or keep going, but to get the main idea across of what you want to communicate down to the fewest amount of words possible, is a challenge. Yes. And so I always love that quote. It always sticks yeah. with me when I'm when I'm writing. And you know, when I see a very simply written document, you know, a proposal or a memo, whatever it is, mm -hmm. super simple, then I really stop and appreciate the time it must have taken to get to that yeah. point. Exactly. Yes. The simpler it is and the clearer it is, the longer it took them to write. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, it's a good rule. What are some important things you think that companies should make sure not to do when sourcing customer feedback? I have a couple for you. <laughs> <laughs> just a couple. Just a couple. Yeah. It's really just a couple. <laughs> um, the first one is to fail to acknowledge feedback. Do not mm. fail to acknowledge feedback. You know, when they say feedback is a gift, it actually is a gift. Because our when our customers give us feedback, they're giving us two massive opportunities. First, they're giving us an opportunity to improve our product. Mm -hmm. And second, they're giving us an opportunity to salvage the, our relationship with them. Mm -hmm. You know, if I am really annoyed with something, it's almost easier for me to walk away than to engage and tell the person why something's annoyed me. Mm -hmm. Right? Absolutely. So when a customer comes to us and says, hey, these three things are really wrong or that one thing I really hated, however harsh it is, the fact that they are giving us that feedback is is truly a gift and if any companies out there whether product or service companies fail to realize that and acknowledge that i think that's a huge mistake and i think the other thing that is a cardinal sin in my eyes when it comes to cx that i think companies should not do is they should not fail to take action so back to when i was saying you know it's well and good to say i have all this data and it tells me all these things but unless we do something with it that's no good to anybody. Mm -hmm. The only thing that's worse than not asking your customers for their feedback right. is asking them for it and then not doing anything about <laughs> yes, it. Yes, definitely. Right? So it's one thing to say, I don't want to know what you're saying or something. But if you've actually gotten that feedback, if you have that gift, then it's up to you to do something with it. So I think those are the two main things. One is, I think sometimes we fail to acknowledge how important feedback is and how critical it is for improving. And then the second thing is we sometimes fail to do things around that feedback, which both of those limit growth. Absolutely. Continuing along the idea of what not to do, given that it's 
still early in 2021. Um, what are some things that you would strongly recommend leaders avoid when putting together their strategies or priorities for the year? What should they avoid? That's a good question. I really like the idea of prioritizing rootlessly. And that really means that the CX leaders need to think about where can we make an impact? Usually there is so much work that can be done, right? So if you think about the entire life cycle we were talking about earlier, all of those personas, several different products, there is so much work that can be done. Trying to prioritize for impact becomes a big key role of the CX leader. And the questions to ask ourselves would be, you know, is this something that will move the needle? Is this a problem that we can tangibly solve in a given time with the given amount of resources that we have at our disposal? Another way to think about that would be to align to the company's goals. So if the company has a specific strategy that they're going after in this year, can we solve problems or blockers along those along the path of those? And I think one thing we CX leaders know is that no matter what we solve, it's for the greater good. It's going to be good for our customers. So again, it really goes back to the idea of think about what you can actually accomplish. Think about what you can actually have tangible results for and you can measure and then focus on those. It's easy to just get lost in the amount of work that can be done. And it's sort of getting, you know, the almost the blinders on to say, these are the four things I'm really going to focus on. I'm going to make a difference in each of these places. And that's all I'm going to focus on becomes the harder thing. I agree. But I think I also think too, like I, I and maybe it's a, a selfish tendency, but I tend to add, like going back to our early conversation around discipline versus motivation. When you have a big list of things in front of you that you can do, and you know that all of them will be beneficial. And I was actually just talking about this with my, my manager last week. I could prioritize them by list of most impact to least impact. Mm -hmm. And then leveraging my work ethic or my discipline, I could execute that list. But I could also put those in order of things that I would most enjoy doing, or I would find most interesting to do, or I would be most motivated to do mm -hmm. intrinsically, not because I have a work ethic and I can do what I need to do, but because I genuinely am excited to, to work on and I can make that list. And I mean, I try to strike a balance mm -hmm. of the two. So I have a weird to-do list, but what do you, like, what's sort of your process for prioritization? How do you kind of balance those two things? I think there is a there is a process of creating that list for my business, and there's a process of creating that list for myself. And I think the process is a little bit different. When it comes to the business, the CX business, I am fully focused on what is the highest impact to our customers? What is the highest impact to the business? Where can we show tangibly the improvement? Because ultimately, you know, CX teams, we're always wanting to make sure that we show the company, you know, return of investment and those kinds of things. So to me, when I'm building the list of CX priorities, it's about impact, it's about results, it's about outcomes. When I build my own list of priorities, I usually, so I have this system where I'll make myself a weekly list and there are all these things I want to get accomplished. Certain things need to be done by certain days. But if there are, you know, like equitable things that kind of sort of just need to be done, I like to prioritize them by the hardest one first. Ah, okay. What I consider to be, you know, it's going to be the most difficult. I need to think about this for a while. I need to research it, whatever that happens to be. I like to pick that one first because I feel like if I start my week or my start my day with the sense of having accomplished something mm -hmm. that was maybe a little bit tough or, you know, required investment, then I feel like the rest of my day 
feels better. <laughs> Interesting. So my personal way of doing it is I usually will pick the thing that is either hardest or requires the most effort or research or something first. Interesting. I'm the opposite. I I go with because I I build momentum throughout the day. So I'm like, oh, got like I brushed my teeth. Check that off the list. Like, but I'll do you know things in increasing levels of difficulty because that takes my motivation from one to the next. But I can absolutely see the argument for starting with the hard thing. Okay. So wait, putting a completely other lens on this. When you eat dinner、mm-hmm. and you've got like three things on your three pieces of food on your plate, do you eat your favorite thing first, your <laughs> least favorite thing first, or the most medium thing first?、Um, That's a funny question. I just generally love food, so <laughs> <laughs> well, all at once, all at once. So I feel like I will. I mean, unless you're comparing, you know, like apple pie to. Sauteed no, spinach. No, dessert. Dessert's not then, in the then equation. Then it's different. But if we're having like no, a but, plate of I don't know salmon and some garlic bread and some sauteed spinach, I kind of like to mix them up, and I'll take different bites of different <laughs> foods. I think. <laughs> oh, you go one to the next. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. I always think the. I, I guess there's not a consensus on that, but it's an interesting. I'm sure there's probably some interesting research we could do because I always start with the most medium thing and then my least favorite thing, and I end with my favorite thing because. As long as there's no, then you have to have like the hot cold. Like, is it you know, am I gonna、yeah. lose value? Like, and then how fast do I eat? Like, there's a whole algorithm. It's a, <laughs> dinner's a really complicated event at my house, but I'm sure there's an <laughs> algorithm behind it, and we could certainly do some really fun research around that. Someone's probably done a project on GitHub on that that tells you the order in which to eat your food. I think the probability of that is very high. <laughs> Couple more questions for you,、uh, because. Part of our conversation has been very philosophical. Obviously, we're talking about garlic bread and salmon. Of course.、Um, and now I'm hungry. But the what would you say is the best piece of advice that you have ever received? Is I think I've received different pieces of advice differently based on where I am in my life. So thinking of my life journey and my life different stages, I think different pieces of advice have resonated. Differently,、mm-hmm. one of the things I've been thinking a lot about this year is being anti-fragile. This is yet another of my favorite books. I'll probably write about it someday. But、um, you know how it's not just enough to be resilient, but it, the idea is to grow from the troubles and the challenges that face us. But currently, I would say the the advice that I am most influenced by is to ruthlessly prioritize. And one of the reasons this is top of mind is we just went through our exercise at work to prioritize our, you know, we call them OKRs, objectives, key results, basically our KPIs for this half of the year. But also because I'm trying to prioritize my personal time as well. You know, how do I spend my time? As I, as we were discussing earlier today, I have time set aside to work out and do different things. Cut your son's hair. <laughs> I want to make sure that I'm prioritizing the things that bring me the most satisfaction and joy, and help me grow as a person. So I think my favorite piece of advice currently is to ruthlessly prioritize. I like that, but if you have a family member who does not ruthlessly prioritize, does that ever lead to like? No, we're scheduled for you know cuddling on the couch from seven thirty to eight thirty, and then I have my. I have a fifteen-year-old team、um, team member, <laughs> family member, <laughs> who prioritizes. See, I caught you there. There's a Freudian slip already. <laughs> I have a fifteen-year-old family member who prioritizes playing his video games over helping mama、yep. with dinner or over <laughs> over doing homework sometimes. So I、yeah. don't know how much my family subscribes to my ruthless deprioritization at the moment. 
but I am working on it. <laughs> I'm sure you'll get it there. I mean, they'll realize they'll if they the longer they wait, the more when they'll feel stupid when they think later on, oh, mom was right the whole time. I should have should have done that thing she I said. I think mom was right doesn't come upon people till they're in their thirties. So <laughs> I have okay. to wait for that. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, <laughs> I'm getting there. You know. Yeah. Bonnie, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Ben. Really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, please leave us a review and share this podcast with a friend. If you want to learn more about Catalyst, visit catalyst.io. Until next week, I'm Ben Wynn, and this was NPS I Love You. P.S. I love you.